This episode, I speak to Jennifer Lace. Jennifer is a performance psychologist at Nottingham Forest Football Club, and she's dedicated her career to study how mindfulness and environmental factors influence optimal human performance. In this episode, Jen provides us with tips on how to deal with anxiety and stress, how to improve behavioural habits, and how we can understand our own mental health better. Jen is also an academic at the Global Institute of Sport and teaches and researches the science behind cognitive and behavioural performance in elite coaching and performance. This podcast episode is perfect for anyone who wants to learn more about how to develop a positive mindset and how to perform at their best in any discipline. Enjoy the show. Psychology is important because, well, lots of reasons. I think it's one of the only disciplines that underpins all of the other disciplines as well. So whilst I know a lot of teams and disciplines try and work really interdisciplinary, psychology is the one that it talks about humans, it talks about feelings, it talks about our behaviours and ultimately in everything we do that underpins everybody. So actually psychology gets pulled into everything and and rightly so. Um, We actually don't know as much about psychology as we should do, as much about psychology as the other disciplines. So it's really early in, well, there there is still, there's lots and lots of historic research. It's not brand new, like some people make out, but we absolutely don't know as much as we do in the other disciplines. So it's also really exciting to think the impact, there's a direct correlation between when an athlete feels that they have good understanding and control of their mental development um, and skills that it increases performance so in a sports psychology world you know that's fundamental and that is a fact that's why it's important but then broader as well I think there's psychology and there's sports psychology and roughly when we're talking about people and emotions and humans then psychology is is everything that we do in every context so yeah I think it has huge scope is probably the short version to the the short answer to the question you, you said then there's limitation in terms of knowledge around psychology what, in comparison to other disciplines. What, what do you think that is the case? So we know there's some kind of neuroscience research out there now. We're starting to understand parts of the brain, but actually we still you know, we don't fully understand the brain. Um, science will tell us that there's still so many limitations every time. If you look at some of the medical research, they still don't know why this happens or after this event, this happens. We're still really, really early on in our learnings about the brain so from that sense we can never be fully sure about what it is that we're dealing with or why so some of the other disciplines can be quite linear where we kind of say if we do this and this this will happen or if we see this and this in the data the chances are you know that there's an increased risk of injury in this way or this player is likely to feel in this way or um, when actually psychology there's still so many moving parts that we're unsure of Um, and I think it depends who you speak to, but in some respects, psychology is quite late to the performance environment. So therefore, there has been kind of less traction in the research. I think we're still figuring out where psychology sits and how we're going to use it. And the nature of the discipline has changed a lot. So where it kind of used to just be um, problems or reactiveness for issues, where now if you speak to the AIS, guys so the English Institute of Sport so you go into a lot of clubs who now have full-time psychology roles there's a real focus on the proactive element of delivery now it's kind of gone back where we say psychologists have a lot of impact working with the staff and you upskill your staff so it's kind of that blend of both so I think because we're all quite early years in understanding what the discipline 
you know, where the discipline sits, what it looks like, where we have most impact and what we're dealing with in terms of the nature of the human brain. There's some of the reasons why we're not fully sure what it is that we're actually working with just yet. Do you feel like you have to change perceptions of people within elite environments or even even in life in general where there's a limitation to our understanding on psychology as maybe it's a society? Do you have to try and change that and integrate knowledge within your practice to to prove the value of it as a as a discipline? Some areas I see us going from one extreme to the other where so for example, in the mental health space, my experience is we maybe historically nobody wanted to even consider mental health. Nobody, you know, people just thought it wasn't important and it didn't exist. Um, so I had somebody once say to me, they were didn't agree with the Simone Biles pulling off the Olympics. And they were like, she said that she didn't feel right. You know, she's just got to go out and perform. And we had a really good debate over that. Um, so still some people still think that you know, we shouldn't be considering that. But then on the flip side is what I experience is if a, an athlete or a member of staff, in my experience, disclose that, like maybe just they're having a bad day, then the staff are down the opposite end and they're like, we need to do something. This person's having a bad day. They've said this, they've said that. And it's like, it's okay. You know, we have fully range of emotions, fully functioning humans have a huge range of emotions and that's quite normal. So we kind of gone from one extreme to the other and we use the term mental health. I think people get really scared really fast if they don't feel comfortable with it, um, in which it makes them then almost like run to somebody to do something about it. And actually it's okay. There's a thing called well-being in the middle and they're not mental illnesses just because they haven't had a good night's sleep. Like that's okay. We can deal with that. Um, but then like you kind of alluded to on the flip side, we we do have some people still who think, okay, what is it? Um, now, really interestingly, I done my doctorate research last year in looking at coaches' perceptions of sports psychology. So it wasn't just football coaches, it was sport coaches. And done a systematic review in it. And really interesting, one of the key themes, which was contrary to what I expected to find, was... Um, older coaches were more receptive of having sports psychologists in their team. Now, there's a difference again between sports psychologists, i.e., being the person, being somebody that you know has a practice, and sports psychology as a topic and as a discipline. But coaches being accepting of sports psychologists was that actually the older, more experienced coaches were more open to that, and that really surprised me. But the reasons were because of their experience and the nature of their journeys and coaching professional athletes, at some point they'd become what they felt stuck or limited in what they were trying to understand and work with on their athletes, that they'd had to lean into the personal space to consider the person or work with a sports psychologist or consider some mental aspects of their performers' performance. Whereas some of the younger, newer coaches now that they taught about psychology on some more of their courses, they came out and thought that they almost didn't need anybody else because they had all of this knowledge and they, you know, they were going to change the world with it. And that was them. So I found that really interesting because obviously I think most people expect the older coaches to be more resistant to psychology. Um, and it was it was the opposite. And it, it really made me it gave me a takeaway message that and it's crucial to understand especially with what we were just saying, where psychology can be so many different things. You know, I'm, I'm building an intervention now for the coach education space about what type of psychologists that people can work with because, again, it can be very, very different. But because of that, people aren't sure. 
So what we have to do as practitioners is to get in to understand what whoever we're working with, what has their historic experience of psychology been? And I think that's, you know, it definitely for myself and I think for others, we often, if we are met with resistance or we're met with not even necessary resistance, but we're met with a person's way of wanting to use psychology that is maybe different than what we want to do with our discipline or with psychology. And then we kind of go, why do they think that they're not being collaborative with us or they don't want to use me in this way and it's not my ideal way, but actually seeking to understand what that person's experience with psychology before, whether as an athlete themselves, whether it's been on a course, whether they work with somebody, because, you know, we are seeing that more and more now. Um, and then using that as a basis to say, ah, okay, I can understand what they expect from me. I can understand a little bit more what they need from the discipline or why, and then starting to help to change and influence their perceptions. And they're some of the key themes I see, yeah. One thing that I picked up on, so you mentioned mental health at the beginning of your answer um, and the differences between um, older coaches and younger coaches and the perception of, of understanding mental health and other factors around psychology. Um, would you suggest then that that understanding and knowledge within that uh, psychological corner then is an ongoing process in terms of our understanding of the area, but also at the same time, the barriers and the different types of things that occur within maybe elite performance where we have to really start to understand some of the issues that might transpire within someone's career someone's um journey as an athlete or even as a person where unexpected things occur and we have to deal with that situation and understand that absolutely yeah um i think even for us in psychology i think people expect you to kind of be an expert on every topic and everything that unfolds and a lot of the time something will occur or an individual if it is in a in a mental health reactive space they will experience something that every single person's formulation is very different so therefore has to be treated very different so when we're bringing in people in our multi-disc team or our interdisc team to work with and think how do we help this person what is right for this person what does this person want every single case is different so um, we had a case, um, I was you know, lucky enough, is that the word? Um, lucky enough, I don't know if that is the right word, to work with an athlete who, it was, it was awful for him. So he lost a parent. And at the time of losing his parent, his team was also going on a run of the most successful run they'd ever been on. And we had to weekly speak with that athlete to ensure that we were putting him at the forefront of everything we did that we were giving him decisions to make that actually I, I, you know there's one point we as psychology practitioners we get you know we we speak a lot about what is us what is our ego what is the client what is the right thing to do and normally I don't really have any worries about letting my client lead I absolutely believe they are the expert in their own lives. We are them soundboards. We give them them tools to help make the best decisions for them. And there was a conversation that I had with this athlete where I actually came away and thought, I don't know if it's the right thing to do is to let him make such a big decision in the state that he is in. Um, and you know, the kind of decision that he went on to make, I still wasn't sure. I used my supervisor to think, is this okay? Is this, you know, so every single time there is, a mental health consideration it's so different 
So, and we're supposed to be the leaders of that. And even, you know, we have some pillars, we have some ideas of kind of predispositions, relevant family history. You know, under, we, we're very lucky in psychology positions that we often see a lot of things from a lot of staff perspectives, whereas a lot of the other staff are maybe just in their own, you know, channel or maybe just in their discipline. So they don't see the holistic picture and we're really lucky to see that. So what that means is we are then armed with as much information or a lot more information than maybe some other people are to help inform the decisions to be made with our athletes and staff um but yeah the, the, you know, we're learning all the time and the discipline is learning all the time so I think we there's it, we are so new every time that's just alluded to there that's one case where we have to say god we didn't think of this or I've worked with this before but it was different because of x and y so yeah it's absolutely evolving in the mental health space jen you're a, you're an expert in elite performance within football and, and and sport in general but anyone watching this might be not in that discipline and they might have issues with mental health uh, and they might be watching this to kind of understand um their well-being and their understanding of who they are what advice would you give to someone who is potentially struggling at the moment and looking at ways to become better within the field of psychology we speak a lot about recognizing what you are feeling so just taking that time out to stop and think what am I feeling and why so often people you know I think everybody's been to the doctors about something physical so it doesn't just have to be a a performance environment but it's almost like going to a doctor and saying I'm sore or this hurts and when the doctor says okay what hurts you saying I don't know actually you're physically stuck then So psychologically to stop and say, instead of saying I'm having a bad day or I'm struggling, we would say, okay, what is it that you feel? And try and recognize them feelings and emotions first and then explore the why. Or when did this start? What happened for me to start feeling like this? And there's some really nice sayings around, if you're feeling anxious, it's because you're thinking about the future. And if you're feeling sad, then it's maybe about the past. So even then really easy sayings are good places to start to think, okay, what am I struggling with? Is it anxiety? Is it stress? Is it lack of sleep? Is it it, what emotion? Is it boredom? Um, Am I not driving towards something that is energizing me right now? And so really recognizing that first um, instance. And then secondly, looking at what you do. So looking at your behaviors and thinking, Okay, how do I in when I feel like this, what's currently working for me, what isn't? And maybe how do I add some more helpful things in there or take some things out? And then finally, what we do know is a person's psychosocial skills are greater than their individual psychological skills. So what I mean by that is find a buddy, link up with somebody. Um, when you are linked and more connected with somebody, things are a lot easier, whether that is adhering to them behaviors that we're talking about, or whether that is just speaking. To somebody to help rationalize what you're thinking one of the things that i do say to our athletes and it's again it's a human performance tip is if you're feeling a little bit sad or you're feeling like in a space where you want to withdraw and you don't feel like going to see your friends or they invite you to you know an online meeting or they invite you to do something and you feel like saying no the greater the feeling that you don't want to go tells you that you probably should so we speak about that a lot. I mean, again, we speak in a high performance environment of where an athlete is, you know, on loan at a different team or goes home from training and is feeling not so great, is feeling 
little bit isolated, a little bit sad about the session or frustrated or low self-worth or any of them things. And they often don't want to go back out and meet people in the evening. So they'll sit then all evening. And we say, actually, the time you don't want to do something is the time that you really should do it. Um, so then a couple of things, you know, be connected, recognize what you're feeling, think about what behaviors you can do and, um, and, and buddy up with somebody. They're some of the key things that I would say. Factors such as, you know, alcohol, drug abuse, there's even issues with, around diet as well, especially in elite performance. Um, are those common themes within your practice and are there anything that you've had to deal with during your career that has been a challenge for you from, uh, from your practitioner's perspective? I think, I think the alcohol one's really interesting because in my experience, this will be my 12th year in professional football on a long term with standing contracts. We've done other bits and other sports, but predominantly that is the environment that I've spent most of my time. And I think that the game has changed a lot and the demands to be a top level athlete. So, you know, they are hydration tested most mornings, the de- physical demand that they have to do, they're under so much scrutiny that I think there's been a change in the use of alcohol as a coping strategy. Um, if anything, now it's a little bit more intermittently where it's kind of off season, let's go crazy, or, um, you know, it's international break, let's go crazy, as opposed to a day-to-day um, unhelpful coping mechanism because I now see that the next day where years ago when I've spoke with ex-professionals and I've worked with some ex-professionals who have quite complex psychological formulations where they have a psychiatrist as well. And, you know, we work really interdisciplinary with them. They could get away with turning up to training a little bit hungover or a little bit tipsy. Um, and you know, there's so many stories online that you hear of players saying that they were drinking in their cars or they felt like they had to drink before they went out. And actually, I'm not saying it doesn't happen because you know, I know one or two modern day or more contemporary cases where it does still. So I'm not saying that it's eradicated totally, but I do see it as a reduction in a coping strategy because and I, I personally, I believe it is because the turnaround in demand of what's been placed on them has changed a lot over the years. But self-harm is quite a common one. Um, I think it's because it's quite easy to hide. It's quite accessible to do. Um, so absolutely, we have that. Um, we, yeah, we have, we have gambling as well. Um, you, you're absolutely right you, when you say around diet. Um, we have that. Um, yeah, we have some quite complex cases. And ultimately, when we talk about these coping mechanisms, we, you know, we remember that they are physical presentations of psychological or emotional distress um so again when you talked earlier about giving that education is that mental health education an ongoing body absolutely right every time like we work with anybody staff or players um or athletes in this space helping the people around them or the whoever the disclosure has been made to or you know helping people understand okay so if it is self-harm we're talking about I think people think, you know, to the untrained ear and eye, that can be really, really scary um, when we start to actually explain, okay, so it is emotional distress and there are levels to it and these are the things that we have to consider and where's the risk and how we work together as different teams of people. Um, you tend to see people go, I just didn't know. Um, so, yeah, there's we still experience quite a lot of unhelpful coping mechanisms, yeah. If you want to reflect on that 12 years of, of working in this industry is there any cases and i know it's very confidential but is there any uh, cases that stand out to you in terms of what you've worked on 
that um, you've had to kind of challenge the way your your outlook towards um, your practice? It's really, um, again, I will say lucky because I'm really thankful that the people who share their stories with me when we get into the one-to-one space um, feel like they can share their stories. So I'm incredibly lucky that they ever do feel that they can open up. Um, I think two cases stick out in my brain, two really kind of complex ones. One was, so I used to always say, um, you know, if any athlete or staff ever said to me that they wanted to identify, so their sexual identity, they wanted to identify as a toaster, then my first response back has to be, okay, how can I help you identify as a toaster? Um, In really kind of jovial terms, but that principle. And then I think if you look at and it is a football example, but if you look at the sociology around football now of where we're having, you know, we now had you know, two, was it two Premier League referees come out and disclose their um, sexual identity? We had the player at Blackpool. So, you know, whilst we're still so far off from it being open, society is now accepting more and we are now going on Twitter and seeing different stories. So I was lucky enough to for somebody to share with me that they worked in the men's male game um, and that they had got to a, you know, a, a real kind of, well, in their 30s years and thought that they should, they were um, assigned the wrong gender. Now imagine trying to work with somebody that has reached midway, depends how long they're going to live to, but, you know, kind of mid thirties in their life, never really being able to say that out loud, be accepting of who they are, even know really who they are and not understand why some of the cycles they found themselves in prior to that day would consistently play out. Um, So not only were they on that learning journey of understanding themselves, but then actually operating in a a world that maybe wasn't going to be ready or accepting of who they are. Um, So having to work on on some of them topics in that space with that athlete, sorry, with that client, with with that organization to say what can we do where we, we weren't ready how can we learn where's best practice you know it, it was really 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 interesting um and there was times when I you know, sat with my supervisor and thought is this how have I ended up in this space you know I'm really thankful that the person knew the person said to me Jen I've never been able to tell anybody this in all of my years and you know thank you for listening so things like that you think okay I'm on the right lines that you know the the person is so grateful for having that space to explore who they are and then how you work with that so that was a really interesting case and I actually strongly believe we're only going to see more of them because like we're saying culturally now it's trying we're trying to become more accepted we've got organizations who are trying to advocate for some of the maybe topics that have people have um, had to squash or not been able to speak about we're trying to be more inclusive we're trying to be break down accessibility barriers and challenges so um I just see that growing and growing so that I'm really thankful to be and also upon reflection you know speaking with you now I'm really thankful that I've been quite early in that where the path hasn't been clear because it's forced me to learn it's forced me to speak with so many other practitioners to see what are we missing what can we add what other options what are we learning um, as opposed to maybe, you know, if it's kind of 10 years down the line and hopefully the world of professional sports, especially football in the men's game, is accepting of sexuality and or different in sexuality and different in gender. You are striving to improve elite performers, but in reality, 
in terms of the cases you said, it's actually, or I'm trying to improve the person and get them, let them to come out in terms of who they are and their identity and what they want to be within this world that we live in. Yeah, you have to change your thought process around that. There was a spell where it was thought that psychology, sports psychology specific practitioners only worked on performance enhancement and that meant only in game for us or, you know, in competition. And actually what we now know is that is often the, the almost chink in the armour or the influence or, you know, even the, the kind of wobble in the performance is often as a result of a lot more going on for the individual. Again, in my, um, in my research around um, coaches' perception of sports psychology, there was a big key theme of are psychologists there to work on well-being or are they there to work on performance? Um, and actually, we know that both are intrinsically linked. And we actually can't really separate the both. So ever saying that, okay, I'm just going to stop you there now because that's nothing to do with non-performance and I need to tell you to go and speak to somebody else from a, putting your athlete or your person at the centre, that's non-conducive. So we would never do that. So actually there's, again, there's a bit of a shift in training as, a, you know, there's, again, we use terms around clinical psychologists is maybe what people used to think and probably still do around what's a clinical psychologist whereas some of the psychology training routes now are more looking at, we do counselling skills, we work on some of the same topics that what more traditional clinical psychologists would work on. Now, we do still have boundaries of practice and we do have to be really careful, but it's not just a case of, I'm going to speak with you about what happens between 9am when you arrive at whatever training complex and 1pm when you leave that training complex. And other than that, we're not going to speak. We absolutely have to look at the formulation of everything because if we what I'll give you a really easy example, but we if we're dealing with an athlete that is, and this is this was an example that happened to me, um, or unfolded for me. We were dealing with an athlete who senior athlete who was um saying that he felt really pressured. And the coach he was working with was a really open coach. He was breaking his skills down, he was given, you know, um, considerate of the feedback, considerate of hot and cold debriefs and loads of different great things and actually upon speaking with the athlete what we found out was um a lot of the pressure came from his father and the reason why some of them were was his father was an ex-professional athlete in this same position and actually although the athlete at the time wasn't aware of some of the influences that the parents had on him it went even deeper to things like his parents were separate and he didn't have a great relationship with dad at the moment. And he was desperate for that relationship with dad. Um, and actually one of the ways in which he was almost trying to get that validation and love and support from dad was through his football. Now, obviously, that's really non... If you said to somebody, I spoke with an athlete or a person about the, the, their family breakup or the dynamics of their parental divorce or their relationship, they would think that's so far from performance. But somewhere along the line, whether it be through their childhood, whether it be through, you know, critical incidents as adults, it influences their thinking and feeling day to day, which therefore influences their performances. So we actually can't really separate the two. Um, so, yeah, I think exactly what you're saying is, you know, if we have a hiccup in a performance that people then decide, OK, now we should look at understanding a person's psychology. It's almost like for us, that's the tip of the iceberg. We want to really get in and understand why, where's that come from? What's going on for that person underneath? How can we help them with that? Do they know that? Is that going to be learned for them? You know, really understanding them as the human. 
really interesting in how you strip that down. You mentioned parents then. Are they very influential in terms of some of the, the issues we see? I think, I think that the story you kind of alluded to then really does swing that towards a yes, but I'm just intrigued to, to, to find out your practices around parents, around health, around habits, around upbringing, um, pressures. In my current role um, within psychology, I don't do a lot with parents, um, okay. more because when I arrived at my current club is we didn't have a lot of psychology provision. So, and every club is different. You know, I know some of the other Premier League clubs, they go huge on working with parents. Whereas at the time we had other areas that we wanted to focus on. Now that's not saying because I don't do it, we don't do it at all because we have now player care roles. We have safeguarding roles. And between us, we pick and share what suits both, you know, all of our skill sets and our time demands as well. So we have some strategic projects which we work with parents on. The bit that I really get into with in terms of parents is when we look at attachment styles, we look at how people build trust, how people build relationships, how people take on challenges and helping the individual recognize and understand their own attachment styles. Um, so whilst we can do some parent kind of psychosocial education, my as a, if you're asking me as a psychology practitioner what bits do I get involved with with parents it's really understanding the role in which the parent plays on the individual whether that be you know a, a really young athlete or a senior athlete or a member of staff it doesn't really matter what role you know the person is in I'm really interested in understanding what influence does and when you talk about habits you know we learn so much so I say to a lot of um, the clients that I work with a lot of who we are and how we take on challenges, how we build relationships, how we learn to manage our emotions is um, derived in our early formative years. So I say to them, so when you're kind of, you know, up till about five years old and you're thinking that you're just learning to walk and that you like carrots more than broccoli and that the clouds move, you're actually learning how to build trust, how to build relationships, how to manage your emotions how to take on challenges in the world. So lots of really key skills that as adults you really need. Um, now that again, there's no right or wrong. It's just by nature of the uh, primary caregivers, by nature of the home environment at such young ages, you're learning a lot. So for me, I get really, and, and I do have to be really careful not to be biased and really just want to get into that conversation because sometimes it's not the right thing for the client. But obviously we do some things around that. But for me, we learn a lot when we consider our relationship with our parents and how we've learned, okay, if I feel like this, what happens if I share it? Because if, you know, if, if mum or dad or whoever the primary caregiver is says, oh, I don't want to hear about that because I think it's negative or we, you know, we don't talk about them things in this house, then actually as a young person, you learn. Okay, so it's not really safe to share when I feel like this. So I just keep it in. So guess what we see as adults? We see them individuals who are really avoidant to sharing things with us that don't really lean in on staff for not just emotional support, but a lot because they learn really easy that their needs aren't going to be met. So I, when you ask about parents, that is more what I look at with an individual. Um, you know, as I say, yeah, we work with parents at club level. We look at how we share our programming. It's really interesting. I might be waffling on here, but I was lucky enough, and I say lucky a lot here, haven't I, to be invited to um, British, um, sorry, the Royal Ballet. And I went for two days and they showed me everything and it was wonderful. And they were asking some questions about our programme and I invited 
the head of coaching at Forest with me because uh, you know two of us can can discuss some of our program better than one and so on um and they we had some time with their education lead because he had some questions for us and they asked us how do we manage our parents and actually it, what came out is we didn't we don't have a lot of parent um, pushback especially at, you know at forest and we can use them as a good example because we include our parents in the process of everything whether it be injury management the program team selection within reason their child's learning development plan their reviews so that we like to think now there's always more and more we can do but we're trying to make the parents as informed as we possibly can um on the journey for their athlete or for their son obviously in the male game uh, with reference there but actually we so whilst we do that kind of at club level my my personal involvement with understanding parental influence gets that deep like we've just been talking about there yeah i think you try and give you a good range so if we have a certain outlook towards a certain situation um whether that's positive or negative C- can we change that as adults is there strategies in place that you might use to, to change that outlook towards that certain thing yeah and that's one of the things <laughs> when we think about this, um, you know the influence of attachment styles in early formative years <clears throat> kind of child development <clears throat> and ad- even adult development um you know it's not fixed so there's a couple of arguments in the theoretical world that say you know, attachment is everything and understanding these thinking patterns and understanding how we build relationships and how we build trust is the be all and end all of everything. And then there's other stuff that says actually, you know, to understand them is one, but they're not fixed is the other. And therefore, when you recognize these patterns playing out in your adult life, how do we and do you want to change them? Are they helpful for you? Are they not? What what does reframing look like for you? Um, you know, how strongly do you believe that they are helpful for you? Um, how much would you like to change them? Because again, if somebody quite likes them, and I'm not going to go on too much, but some things around um, eating disorder behavior, often people like what they're doing and they like these parts of them. Now, we cannot, you know, even the with the best psychology support in the world, we can, we're going to struggle to override um, some of them coping mechanisms if that person likes them. So, and again, it's probably similar with, um, alcohol addiction, gambling addiction. We, you want to work with the individual to see what's their belief system on the way they are. Do they like it? Do they not? Do they want to change it? And then we can start to work with them. Yeah. But again, you probably, I tend to find as a practitioner the the one of the discussions where we have around them understanding. Okay, how do they communicate their needs and what do they do when they feel emotional needs? And therefore then saying, okay, this is quite normal. You know, every single human being has these ways. They're not all the same as yours. Um, But also it doesn't have to be like this and almost normalizing it and helping them articulate the things that they experience. That for me is one of the most fulfilling sessions. And it's not about me as the practitioner, but I genuinely feel like the reason why it's the most fulfilling session is because it's like you see the light bulb in your person where they go, Okay, so yeah, I do I do do this and I do recognize and I do identify in there. So you're telling me it doesn't have to be like this for the rest of my life. No. Okay. And then you start to get again some, um, you know, we speak a lot about communicating your needs, a lot about what your boundaries are, a lot about what do you get from other relationships and why, um, and therefore how might you influence other relationships? So yeah, they're absolutely not fixed or in my 
from my understanding of reading things and making my own kind of beliefs. I don't believe they're fixed. No, we can work on them. Any examples of that where you've had to kind of take it step by step and understanding the process rather than just saying you've got to stop doing that behavior? Because I, I can imagine people in general know they want to change, but at the same time, they don't know how to change. So what would you consider there in terms of that process of how and why? And there's quite a lot of models on change. Um, so you've got kind of you know, pre-contemplation, contemplation, readiness to change, active changing. So you kind of, as a practitioner, we would think, where is this person or where is this team or where is this organization? And you know, they're saying these things, but realistically, where are they? And you can ask your you can ask your individual that. One of the, the great things about the way we operate is you can especially if you're operating in a more of a kind of cognitive behavioral approach, you can use resources where you will put it and say, where do you think you are? But again, that's helping them say, oh, so I've got control of this now. There's maybe a title to help me explain what I'm thinking or I've only just started thinking about it. So we experience it every single day and you're absolutely right about it. It's not just athletes, it's humans. Is you think of a time when you thought, "Mm, I'm going to join the gym or I'm going to buy some running trainers and I'm going to start doing some little jogs. You think about buying them running trainers or that gym top for weeks before you actually do it. Some people think about it in the morning and they bought it by the evening. So recognizing and helping a person recognize where they are in them stages is your step number one. Um, So, you know, there's like two parts to it is you recognizing it or what you think for your clients, but then also actually getting your clients experience and understand where they think they are. And a bit of a marry up in the two. And um, there's another really, really great model that I started using in sport, which is called the Combi model. Mm-hmm. And this is a behavioral change model. It's uh, basically it was born from a systematic review of all of the behavior change models or, and interventions. And it's actually more of a medical model, but it looks at what are, what are the reasons why somebody is limited in their behavior change? What, where are they stuck? Is it a psychological stuckness? Is it a physical stuckness? Is it an opportunity? So, for example, if we were to say, um, say, say me, say we were to say that I, you know, I might sit and say, I want to play rugby or I want to read a book. Oh, I like, I like how you're laughing when I'm saying because <laughs> you're looking at me no being quite. <laughs> um, or, uh, but actually, one of the, and then I say to you six months later, I still haven't played rugby, but I really want to. One of the challenges might be there's no rugby clubs closer to where I live. So my opportunity is really limited. So when you talk about environment, actually, no wonder I'm not doing it because there's no opportunity for me. Now, when we look at why maybe a striker isn't putting a cross into a box, maybe he's not not been given the ball or maybe he's not making the run that he needs to do. So his opportunities are limited. So they're just two examples, kind of broad day to day. You know, somebody deciding to take on an exercise or, um, you know, a real in-performance one. But we look at, is it a motivational thing? Uh, you know, what is the component? And then it, we have a lot of different interventions based on depending what the, you know, what almost like the, the challenges that is hindering the, the behavior change at the start. Even if you don't want to change a habit, just in general, understanding your way of thinking and your behaviors is something that I think we all need and we should all should really relate to um, counseling or even being mentored in general just to understand the way that we act and the way that we behave just just on what you said I presume reflection is really key within your practice then um now you know I, I was on a, a zoom call a couple of weeks ago again I was really lucky to be on a zoom call with um some senior coaches in an English institute of sport team 
and me and the psychologist who was on the call we were talking about what basically what we have is called a modality of practice so we were talking about what we do what approach do we take what psychological approach do we take when we're in a one-to-one conversation and one of the coaches um, in the GB sport actually said Jen I don't know what that is can you explain it and it was really nice to hear the openness of a coach to say I haven't got a clue what that is help me understand because I think people think sometimes and this is maybe where the misconception of what psychology is and what do we do in a one-to-one space believe it or not we don't just go in and hope for the best you know we are trained in different ways of working so counseling is very different not very different but counseling is different from psychology um but there are approaches and there are ways in which we can work in a, in a counseling space so things like um I love and it's interesting that I say I love it I have a strong preference towards what we would call person-centered therapy um, which is the counseling approach and I have I don't know what came first I don't know whether my love for PCT which is a short version came before its effectiveness in what I see its effectiveness in professional football or whether I love it because I see its effectiveness in professional football it's that chicken and the egg I'm not sure but ultimately, this is a counselling approach. We, as the, as the practitioner, it's led by your client. Our role is to help you reflect. Our role is to help you explore and ask some what we would call seratic questions, so deliberate questions, um, reflect themes back to you, ask you, do you see this with your behaviours or do you see this in yourself or do you remember this? And actually through being a soundboard and it being we would, it's what we call a non-directive approach. So we as the, as the practitioner, we don't direct you really. We let you lead. We are just there to facilitate and soundboard. And I absolutely love that, that approach, a PCT approach. Now, CBT approach is there to reflect still, but not as much because you as the practitioner, you can direct more. So you would say to your client, uh, I think we should speak about this as well. You can add things into the session. You can say, can I ask you to do this? Can I ask you to do that? Can I give you this to do between the session? So actually it's a lot more, I mean, it's still really collaborative, but it can be a lot more um, practitioner-led. So whilst both, and then we have other modalities. So we, you probably see online, you have REBT, you have um, acceptance commitment therapy as well. But that, that basis of PCT, of just getting in and helping your clients understand what it is they're thinking. Normally, if it's in a, even in a proactive sense, actually, normally when people come and speak with you in a psychology role, it's to make sense of what's going on. And it's because they're told in a lot of other areas of their life what to do. And actually that either they now no longer know what to do or what they're being told conflicts with what they really want to do, but they're scared to say things back. So normally by the time they speak with us in this space, actually having somebody where we're never going to judge what you say, you know, and and I used to have this real hang up about not fully understanding the technicalities of football, but the kind of older that I'm getting and the more practical applied experience I'm getting, it allows me to be really not judgmental. So things when athletes talk about wanting to go on loan, often we know the athlete will come and tell us about the ins and the outs of their thought thought processes about going on loan. But because we don't have a motive, because we don't know the style of football that X team plays, or we don't know the league that they're in or the path that it may take them, we might have a little bit of understanding, but actually we're able to ask them questions to allow 
your client to reflect on them and speaking and verbalizing them and make sense of them to you or with you. Um, and actually, we're never going to say, well, do you think you should go to, I don't know, Dundee, miles away from where they live? And because, you know, they're a really good team and da, 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 because all you're doing is you're putting another opinion when they're already quite stuck. So we kind of take that, especially in a PCT approach, take that back step to say, no, you come and tell us what you're thinking and just let us help you. Um, and almost, you know, if it was its physical equivalent, given that knot in the hamstring, giving it that kind of massage out or rub out and kind of allowing it to go back to a state that it understands what it wants to do. So, yeah, I think your know, reflection in I, that, I think it's probably one of my, my favorite things in in a PCT approach is just giving the person space to reflect and explore and decide what it is that they're thinking and feeling is, is, has a lot of impact. Probably the right word. Everyone watches deadline day on, on, the, on the last day of the transfer window and there's certain players moving to certain clubs and there's last minute decisions and players going um, in the last hour to a football club. I get, from my pers- perspective, looking in, that looks very stressful for, for the player moving. Did you ever have to deal with anything along those lines in terms of, relocation and coping within a new environment or maybe going international uh, playing internationally in, in, and understanding a different culture a different way of living did you ever come across those situations the industry especially football we are quite late to the party in giving this our attention um the best in my experience the best coaches and managers do this really well um and again i think it comes back to the environment approach and cultural approach as opposed to just in a one-to-one psychology approach if we if i was to work in a one-to-one with an athlete and help equip them with the most your confidence come from lots of different sources but a lot of evidence based of how they've done this before the impact they've had before with a team and then they go and move if that new team isn't open that new environment and that new culture isn't conducive to having somebody new there then all the individual work it's just going to get squashed. So I think it's a, a big balance between, um, and that's where some of the other approaches around so acceptance commitment therapy, in it's loosest, loosest form. And I don't mean to kind of devalue the approach because again, it's really effective, but teaches somebody that no matter what they face, they can, it's going to be okay. They're, they're going to be fine with this. Um, so whilst you're doing individual work like this, I think organizationally to look at how do you transition players into your environment now I know it's out it's in the telegraph we had obviously at Forest we've just signed 21 new players just this transfer window and um our player liaison lead um and our um head of oh I think he's assistant head of football he they had to settle all of these players in from a practical point of view now again with that comes also a psychological point of view as well and it's it is crazy but I think Another thing that I get asked to do, there's a really great, and it and never occurred to me, but there's a really great platform on Instagram called the Lifestyle Club. And what this is, this is a, a platform and a, like a body really for families and friends of professional athletes. Now, it's not just football. It was set up by two um, you know, families of ex-professional footballers, but it's for athletes. And quite often they will ask me, can you write us an article on this topic? Can you write an article on you know, dealing with the media? Can you write an article on relocating and actually helping them understand some of the psychological experiences? And you know, we use models loosely, but they do help us explain how we're feeling and what we're, you know, what ultimately we're experiencing. 
um, because of exactly what you're saying. The need to support the individual and the families is huge, but there's no clubs actually, other than the surface level player liaison, player care type roles that are practical in terms of finding them houses, helping them get set up, helping them get driving licenses in languages that they can't, um, you know, articulate in. Um, we're quite late to the party in, in supporting and understanding them transitions. But I also know um, Lawn Tennis Association is doing some really, really great work on them transitions. So when I speak around that, I do speak from a football perspective. Normally what I do with my guests is I get them to go back to when they began. But what I'm going to get you to do is look forward. So the day you kind of finish within your discipline and the day you finish within psychology, what would you want your legacy to be? What would you want to have achieved during your, your career span within the field of psychology? Oh, so a couple of things are already starting to fly out to me. If I was to try and consolidate it to me, I would say I hope that people, or I hope that people would say either they could really count on me but I guess that's probably not just as a psychology practitioner, that's, you know, just as a colleague, as a friend, as a person, as just being present, no matter what they ask me to do. But from a professional legacy, I think I would hope people would say um, that maybe I really made them think differently about what was best for the human. And a really good, you know, you're asking me for the future, but where I kind of thought that, that I've just done my best work was I was working with a really, really great coach, probably a better, a, well, definitely a better psych social coach than I've ever been because I've never coached. Um, but in, through our discussion, I was, we were talking about uh, not only psychological safety, but we were talking about the different levels and different stages of psychological safety. And through that, he was able to reflect on one or two of the individuals within his team. And he said, I just never even thought about this in this way. So what I'm now going to do is for that person, I'm going to go and do X and Y. And I came away and I thought that for me is a prime example of great work where I'm not taking the monkey. I've helped him. He has the greatest relationships with his team, but we're able to think about how we can consider the individual and make it better and make the individual perform better in just a little bit of a different way. Um, so it will probably be that. I think I would like people to say that you know, I made them or I helped them think slightly different about what was best for the individual or kind of the best approach with the individual. Um, yeah. So where can we find you? So anyone watching uh, this podcast and they want to maybe get in contact with you, can we, where, where can we find you? I presume social media? Um, yeah, so probably my Twitter. Um, so I do have Twitter. Um, it's at Lacey underscore Jen. Um, not put very... it in the description yeah okay. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah um yeah or linkedin i do have a linkedin um i'm not i do check social media but i'm not a great poster so disclosure if you're following gonna follow me for up-to-date <laughs> latest posting i'm not I'm not gonna be a person but yeah them too jen thank you for your time thank you for having me on it was great to speak with you